Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and meticulously. Every single piece about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was really weird one to write because every time I tried to outline... The story became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I feel like I have to say something about Jim Sheeler. I'm recording this on Wednesday, September 22nd, one day before and just hours after I interviewed Kent Babb for this episode. I learned that Jim had died. He was 53 years old. If you listen to this podcast, you know how amazing Jim was. His name comes up in the show often when we're talking about other reporters we try to emulate. Jim was a friend of mine, but also a mentor. I started a feature obituary series at the Columbus Dispatch after meeting Jim and learning about his work in Colorado. I couldn't believe it when he sent me a draft of Final Salute, the book, and asked me to read it and give him feedback. I mean, he was a Pulitzer Prize winner, and I was just this little reporter in Ohio. Listening to Jim talk about telling the stories of those who have died sparked in my mind a way to write my own cancer memoir. For years, I had trouble trying to understand why I survived childhood cancer, but so many other kids, and my doctor and a nurse, all died of their own cancers. Over time, it came to me. I needed to tell their stories the same way Jim told the stories of so many people who died way too early. Jim is in that category now, and I want to make sure his story is told. I'm going to put together an episode focused on Jim, so if you have stories that should be included, let me know. I'm easy to find online. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Kent Babb. Babb is a sports feature writer for the Washington Post. He writes about the NFL, college sports, the NBA, and the intersections of sports with social, cultural, and political issues. We talked about his new book, Across the River, Life, Death, 
and football in an American city. It was published by Harper One in August. Across the river is a riveting look at a high school football team in a part of New Orleans few of us ever hear about. It's a team made up of players and coaches who have to deal with shootings and murder on a regular basis. Yeah, in 2018, I wrote a story for the Washington Post about uh, Bryce Brown, uh, who's the head coach at Edna Carr High School, and he uses this championship football program uh, not just to compete year after year for Louisiana State Championships, but to redirect and maybe even save lives of, of kids who live on this side of the, of the Mississippi River. And I embedded through the 2019 season with Edna Carr High as they were trying to win their fourth consecutive Class 4A state championship. You know, I witnessed things that I, I don't think I would have believed was real in the United States, you know, if, if I hadn't done this project. Bab is also one of the writers included in the year's best sports writing 2021. That's the new anthology created by Glenn Stout. The book goes on sale October 5th. Bab's story ran in the Washington Post and is about Anthony Giuliani, Rudy's son, and his questionable job at the White House. As usual, I've linked to all of the work we talk about on the website. You can find that at gangrethepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Kent. Thanks so much for having me, man. You know, I uh, uh, the, the one reason I want you on 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 the show is to talk about your book Across the River: Life, Death, and Football in an American City, uh, which we'll get to. Um, but I, I wanted to let you know why I ended up buying the book, right? Because uh, I, I have this love hate relationship with social media, and I keep wanting to get rid of my Twitter account. Um, but your book, I saw mentioned by several people, several journalists who I really admire. And then I saw um, Ben Montgomery's tweet. Uh, ben Montgomery obviously is, is, is the man who uh, created the, the namesake for the podcast itself, gangry.com. Um, and he was raving about it. And I was like, I mean, I've seen so many that I had to buy it. And so I bought it because of that. And so, you know, every once in a while, right? I mean, so that's the one reason I, I can't like get out because I come upon... I'm more and more finding books that, that I really want to read. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, so social media, it, it finally wins one for me. Yeah. It's uh, it's so now it's like one in nine or two and 98 all time record. Right. Yeah. I really hate it myself. So yeah, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you, okay. So your book across the river, life, death and football in an American city. Um, it was published by Harper one uh, uh, in August um, it's a really riveting book about like one high school football team, uh, in 2019. Can you tell me more about the book? Yeah. In 2018, I wrote a story for the Washington post about, uh, Bryce Brown, uh, who's the head coach at Edna Carr high school. And he uses this championship football program, uh, not just to compete year after year for Louisiana state championships, but, to redirect and maybe even save lives of, of kids who live on this side of the, of the Mississippi river. And, you know, man, I, I've just never been around anybody who's quite as honest as Bryce. I mean, like a lot of times coaches, um, the higher you get in particular, the less honest they are about the, the real challenges of their job. And, you know, Bryce 
he just like his answer is he just doesn't have time for that. Like he's got bigger problems, bigger things to do, much more work than to have to worry about bullshit. Um, and as a journalist, obviously I, I appreciate that. Um, and so, yeah, I am, I embedded through the 2019 season with Edna Carr high as they were trying to win their fourth consecutive class four, a state championship um, in 2016. So three years before their former quarterback Tonka George had been murdered on the streets of new Orleans. Uh, and, you know, I witnessed things that I, I don't think I would have believed was real in the United States, you know, if I, if I hadn't done this project. And so, I mean, I, I think I'll be chasing a story like this for the rest of my life. Uh, I think it's probably the most important work I've ever done. And it, it changed how I look at the world. Um, you mentioned uh, Coach Bryce Brown um, and, and the fact that this started with a, a story in the Washington Post. Um, how, how did you learn about him? How did that come about? And then, then what made you want to go, go and, and report that story? So I've got to back up a little bit. In 2016, um, I got sent to New Orleans by the Post uh, after Will Smith, a former Saints player, got gunned down in the Lower Garden District. And, you know, Smith was this beloved figure locally. You know, he helped the Saints win the Super Bowl, you know, in the years after Katrina. Um, but I remember thinking when I was down there, this was in the Lower Garden District, which is where like Sandra Bullock lives, where Emeril Lagasse lives. Like, how does this guy get killed in a place like this? Um, and there's just not a good answer. And the second part of it is, um, when I got back and the story posted, somebody from city hall called and though they were not happy that this happened, of course, you know, what they were really complaining at me for was that I was telling the world that new Orleans had a gun violence problem when new Orleans has a huge gun violence problem. So, I mean, I get it. Like their, their economy is based on tourism. And sort of this lie that this is just a place where there are no consequences. And I just thought it was a really strange thing for somebody who works for the city to be calling a reporter and, and trying to make me buy that. Um, so anyway, like I, I just sort of filed that away. That was a very bizarre experience. And then a couple of years later, uh, an editor of mine, Jeff Dooley, sent me um, a story about Bryce Brown it was the, the night before signing day in 2017 when 13 car players were supposed to be signing college scholarships. It was supposed to be a remarkable, amazing day. Instead, uh, reporters had come to Carr because the night before, two um, teenage men had been shot and killed right, right outside the, the basketball game. And it's just so common in this community they didn't stop the game like you could hear the gunshots inside and they just didn't stop you know the coaches are, were told you know hey just carry on and two people are out there dying mm. <laughs> it's just something i can't really wrap my head around even now so the thing that struck me was bryce was the only person you know more than the person at city hall more than the mayor at the time more than you know the police superintendent everybody was trying to say hey this is not who we are new orleans does not have this problem you know, Bryce said, we do, and we have to do something about it. We, we have to first stop lying if we ever want to really address this. So that struck me, and a couple of weeks after I read that, I was on a plane to New Orleans. Overall, so you wrote, you wrote that story. Um, what happened when you, when you reached out to Bryce a, a second time and said, okay, I wrote that story, now I want to do a book? 
I mean, he was almost warning me, you know, I mean, like he doesn't think there's anything unusual or remarkable yeah. about his life, you know, like he thinks that's the way every football coach lives, you know, like he thinks, you know, just everybody in, in every town USA is dealing with kids who are, you know, borderline homeless or don't have regular access to electricity or food or water. Um, he just thinks that's normal, you know, that like somebody, you know, you get a call and somebody you care about has been shot to death. Um, and so I, man, I bet I told him 10 times, just like, this is not how it is everywhere. And it's certainly not how it is, you know, where I live. Um, so I think he was just like, well, I mean, okay, like you can come write this, but is there really a story there? Um, so yeah, I mean, he, I don't think he quite understood the gravity of it all, um, from the remarkability standpoint and probably just like how much I was going to be asking of him. <laughs> You know, I mean, a book like this, like really takes a lot of time, a lot of questions, um, a lot of probing. And, you know, he never got mad at me. He never told me to F off or anything like that. But um, there were times where I think he he sort of wanted to be left alone. And I'm afraid I can't grant that request, Bryce. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, how how much you said you embedded with them. So tell me about what that was like for the 2019 season, how uh in a typical week how much time were you spending uh down in new orleans and, and with the team i mean the short answer is as much as i possibly could so my daughter uh at the time was two had just turned two um so it wasn't okay for me to just to move to new orleans so i went back and forth i live right outside of dc i went back and forth 19 times over the course of the season i think there were 10 consecutive weekends and weekends sometimes were you know, Friday to Sunday, sometimes they were Thursday to Wednesday. It just depended on what was going on and how much I needed to see. And, um, you know, I, I stayed for a week once uh, because there were two important games. Uh, but for the most part, I was just like sort of going back and forth, trying to do the day job with the post, getting on a plane, trying to do this other thing on the weekends and also trying to not make my family hate me. Uh, so, I mean, it was tough. I mean, there's a there's a moment kind of in the middle of the book and um, a, a wide receiver gets confronted on the field by a young woman after a game who accuses him of attempting to murder her brother. Mm -hmm. And she threatens to kill him right there on the field. Um, and I was not there. So this was a, a recreated scene because, I mean, Carr was a really dominant football team uh, that year, just like they are every year. Um, and the coaches said, look, if you want to skip a game, this is the one to skip. So, of course, you know, I'm watching a movie with my wife on a Friday or whatever it was, and I get a text from a former coach who was like, hey, Trent Washington, you know, got threatened tonight on the field. So, I mean, I was on a plane at 6 a.m. the next day, and I needed to interview people about what had happened while it was still fresh in their mind. You know, what did you hear? What did you feel? What did you smell? Um, to try to get a sense of what had happened and I felt like a huge idiot because I, I mean, this was one of the biggest moments of the season and, and certainly in my book. Um, and I was a thousand miles away, you know, watching top chef or whatever it was we did. Yeah. Yeah. I will tell you that you wrote it well because I read it like you were there. <laughs> so, um, uh, when you, you mentioned some of the questions you ask people when you get there, especially when you know, you need to re recreate something that's incredibly important, um, that really shows what, what life is like for, for the people in that part of new Orleans and for those high schoolers. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned some of the questions. What, what else, how do you, how do you approach people when you know you need to recreate something 
um, as important as that was uh, for the story you're telling? Just very honestly, you know, like I'm an idiot. I wasn't there. You know, this horrible, frightening thing happened. Um, you know, my book is partly about gun violence. I know this sucks, but I really have to ask you about everything, you know? And so I just went, I mean, I think I interviewed uh, on the Saturday after the Friday night game, the, that Saturday I sat in on meetings um, and just tried to get a sense of kind of what the, the general mood was. And sort of one by one, I, I asked people to go into Bryce's office with me, you know, tell me the story, you know, what happened last night. And then from there, you know, you, you kind of get a little more and more specific and you start to get, um, you know, kind of the holy shit, you know, this happened, you know, they're making sense of it in real time, which, you know, if you're going to miss the actual incident, um, at least you're getting, they're making sense of it. I was there for the kid, the, the, when the students came back, they had to have a football practice um, after this. And, you know, I won't reveal too much because it is a, you know, hashtag plot point, but, um, you know, they had to have a football practice after this and they had to address what happened on that Friday. So I was there for all that, there for all the fallout, um, lots of fear, lots of uncertainty because they thought somebody was coming to the field. Mm -hmm. um, to sort of settle the score. Um, so I was there for all that and just like having to sort of wring out the emotion, the fear, the uncertainty, and, and honestly, just like sort of see what Bryce was thinking for the first time in the history of the program, this, this program that's designed to, to save lives actually endangered a life. And so, I mean, I can't help but think about it from a writer's standpoint, but there was this kind of really fascinating dramatic irony that was happening that I had to get at. And, and thankfully these, these people all understood they were happy. I was there, or at least they didn't give me a hard time. They wanted to talk to me because I think it helped them make sense of their own thoughts. Yeah. You, you mentioned pulling people into to coach Brown's office. Were, did that include some of the football players, some of the students? And I'm, and I'm beyond that. I'm also curious like in terms of uh, when you're going in and interviewing, obviously kids who are under 18, what types of um, how how did you how how did you go about doing that in terms of making sure that all the I's and T's were dotted and crossed? Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, the the answer to the first question is yes. I mean, if if you were involved in that incident, uh, there was a, a young player, a young running back who played a, a very important role and actually might have saved lives by his actions that evening. Um, now he played it, you know, pretty close to the vest because I mean, like, there's kind of this, you know, you don't snitch uh, code in New Orleans and a lot of places in this country, but. Um, the main characters in the story were all 18 when the reporting started. I didn't, I didn't intend that. I guess one of them is not. So fat uh, had just turned 16. Um, from a legal standpoint, Bryce and the Edna Carr program have every player sign a, a media release. And so from a technical standpoint, I was protected. Initially I had thought about changing names just to protect them. Uh, there's a lot of just decisions you have to make like in real time. I mean, I, my whole philosophy was I want to tell a story. Yes, but I also want to do no harm. I mean, these people kind of have it hard enough. They don't need a white guy coming to this all black high school and making their lives more complicated. Um, so a couple of things, I mean, I, I thought about changing names. I was encouraged 
if not sort of outright instructed to not change names. Like the coaches really wanted me to tell this thing straight. Um, here's how it is. We don't need you to sugarcoat it, you know, tell the story without embellishment. Mm -hmm. And, and so, okay. Yeah. That's, that's what I'll do. Um, as best I could, I tried to make sure uh, if I was, if I thought I was going to use uh, the name of a young person of, of an underage person, I tried to talk to their parents and let them know. Uh, there are a handful of places where I did not use names, uh, probably could have, you know, from like a legal standpoint, but I just didn't feel right about it. Um, and, you know, uh, just a, a couple of times where, um, you know, you, you make an effort, you kind of do your best and, you know, like a lot of the, a lot of the parents aren't involved in the kids' lives. And, you know, so what do you do? And, and I had to sort of take each of those cases uh, on an individual basis, I asked the players, or I'm sorry, I asked the coaches what they thought about it. Uh, and we talked, I mean, there was a lot of discussion uh, about the right thing to do. Uh, and it's not easy, but I, I tried my best and, you know, think I told it fairly and um, just tried really hard to not make things any harder than they needed to be. There's one player that you write about. Um, and, and in my mind, you know, after reading the book, it, it, he's kind of like the number two character in a lot of ways. Uh, and that's Joe Thomas. Um, who's had a really rough life uh, with with um, a, a mom who has been in and out of, of jail. Um, what was that like when you approached, because you talked with her, correct? Yeah, so when the book begins, uh, Joe's mom, Kiyoka, is in jail. Uh, so she's it's not the first time she's been in jail. She's sort of been in and out of prison for most of her adult life. Joe is her only son. You know, I sort of tell people that Bryce is the main character and Joe is the protagonist. Um, and Joe is a senior linebacker. Um, he's a team leader. And, you know, this is his shot. You know, he, he grew up literally on the streets. Like for a long time, his, he was his mom's lookout uh, when she was selling drugs, which she calls being on the block. And, you know, when he witnessed his first murder when he was eight years old, and, you know, just like his life is is completely different than what I expect an American young man to live. Um, and so with first off with him, you know, I took it really, really slowly. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know that his mom was going to get out of jail and that I'd have a chance to interview her. Um, I did. That's uh, kind of a mild spoiler alert, I guess. But um, Joe was 18 he like his default setting is to not trust strangers, certainly not white people. Um, so I listened, I just like, I, look, no pressure. If you want to tell me the story, I think your story is amazing, but if you want to tell it to me, like that's your choice. Like I understand it's going to be painful and I've got to really dig deep. So if we go there, you know, I tried to let him understand kind of what he'd be getting into. I, I did not want to have ethical regrets. Uh, so I just tried to be straight up, you know, the whole time they were being honest with me. I think they owe, I think I owe them my honesty as well. Um, you know, told them little personal facts about myself. I'm the son of a single mom, you know, who tried her best, you know, it's not the same, but I mean, I grew up, you know, in poverty and, you know, tried, I know that it's possible through like a series of events, you know, and probably some good luck to, to find a different kind of life. Um, so we, we just talked, I mean, like he, he, shared things about his life that I didn't expect him to. And then um, when I did get a chance to interview Kiyoka the first time, you know, the first thing out of her mouth was you look like the people who locked me up, mm. you know, and like a white guy who she's never met, who's asking questions about her and her professional life as it were. Um, you know, that, 
I, I don't doubt that raises some red flags. Um, so she sort of took control of that conversation, that first conversation. And, and frankly, I let her, you know, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot I could probably do because I was in her house on her turf. Um, but I, that's part of who she is. Like she's a pretty intimidating person and that plays into the story because like she's learned this very unique way of survival that she's taught to Joe. It seems absolutely brutal to me, but I also now think that it's absolutely necessary for people like Joe, you know, like, I don't think Kyoko was a bad mom. I think she was a good mom, you know, even though she would like pay kids in the neighborhood to go pick fights with Joe and just beat his ass. Like she would beat his ass. Um, just, Hey, you got to tackle me tonight. She's 230 pounds. Um, and, and Joe was 12 or whatever at the time. I mean, it, it seems so unnecessary, but that's sort of a, I'm lucky to think that, you know, like I'm privileged to think that uh, it's not unnecessary in a community like that. Like in the seventh ward of New Orleans, when you're in the drug trade, sadly, that is not unnecessary. And I actually think that, you know, it's, it's it seems so counterintuitive, but I actually think Kyoko was a good mom. When you're, when, when you know, you're going in to talk with people and you're really going to dig deep, um, as I'm sure you do with, with all of your journalism projects and not just like a book project. Um, do you go in, do you give them a heads up and, and give them an idea of, Hey, I know this is going to be, this is going to be hard. Um, uh, I, you might not like the questions I want to ask. I always tell people that, you know, it's my job to ask you, it's your job to tell me, you know, if you want to, it's, it's your job to figure out if you want to answer me at all and how much you want to tell me, you know, like, and if you tell me you don't want to talk about it. Okay. But like, make sure I know, you know, don't make me guess. I'm a terrible, terrible mind reader. So if something is bothering you or needs to be on background or off the record, like you need to tell me that. So uh, some of that is obviously just like basic journalism, but they don't know that, yeah. you know, so it's different when you're dealing with like an NFL head coach than when you're dealing with somebody you know, who lives a civilian life, you know, as I, as I like to joke, but yeah, I mean, I look, I try to be as honest about the process as I can be without scaring them off. And, you know, I'm a human being, you know, I'm wrong a lot. I'm really, really good at being wrong. And I need you to tell me when I'm wrong. If, if, and I'm going to share with you my theories, I do this in, you know, my stories with the post and I do it in a book project like this, like, I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to, yes, extrapolate and write a story based on the distillation of these theories I may have and the reporting I've, I've gotten. But if, if my own sort of interpretations are wrong, you know, like I need you to tell me that if I'm full of shit, you know, you have my permission to tell me you're, that I'm full of shit. I'm, it, it happens a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm used to it. I've got a lot of practice being full and full of shit and wrong. <laughs> Um, so weirdly, like that actually goes a long way, you know, because I think like, I don't mean it like this, but I think that that is a signal that I'm not perfect. I haven't made my mind up and this needs to be a collaboration. Um, I just think it's like a tip of the hat that I'm trying to be honest with you. And, and, and like, if, if I'm off the, off the track, like I need you to pull me back, um, at least with like not media savvy people. Yeah. Uh, if I'm writing about 
you know, a head coach or somebody who's a celebrity, you know, the rules may be a little bit different, but like a, a normal person, as it were. Um, no, I, I try to grant them, you know, as much leeway as possible. And I try to write about them with compassion and understanding first, um, which is not always kind of the way we're taught, you know? And so mm-hmm. like, I've, I've had to sort of learn that, I think, yeah. especially with somebody like Kiyoka who scared me, who legitimately scared me. Um, I had to realize sort of after the fact that, you know, this is a three-dimensional character. She's a human being, you know, nobody is good or bad. You know, we're all sort of on the same spectrum, you know, usually trying to get a little closer to the good edge and, you know, none of us has it right. And I, I have to realize that, that like people show affection, people instruct in very different ways, um, and she was a journalistic challenge for me because like I had to remind myself time and again, Matt, that I have to write about her with compassion and, and as a human being. I'm assuming, or I'm guessing that if anybody uh, told you you were full of shit, the most likely candidate was coach, uh, coach Brown. <laughs> I mean, not really, honestly, Nick, Nick Foster, uh, he was pretty good at, at telling me I was full of shit. Uh, Omari sometimes, um, and Ronnie Jackson, you know, like Ronnie was really good at just being like, nah, you're wrong on that one. Um, Bryce sort of lives in this sort of comfort bubble of his own creation that like, he told me that I was wrong mm-hmm. on a few occasions, but usually I had to ask him multiple times or sort of read body language and be like, what Bryce, I feel like this is bothering you. Or I feel like, you know, what aren't you telling me here? Um, cause he's just a different kind of cat you know i mean he's he's a different bird which is like what makes him a really good character uh on the page but you know not always an easy person to know in real life even with me and i don't work with them so um he he lives in a very unique way and it works but it's not easy you know and i i kind of wonder what people would say like how people would compare you know from a football standpoint this is obviously a huge you know, extreme, but how would you compare Bryce Brown to Bill Belichick? You know, there is this way that works, but it's hard and it's grueling and it's emotionless often. Um, But how do you question it? You know, I mean, at least with Bryce, you know, he does see everybody as a human being, you know, with feelings. It's not just about the football. In fact, it's, it's probably not even mostly about the football. Right. right. Um, But there is sort of this heartless way through which you have to see the world that makes this possible. And that's hard to explain, you know, and it's certainly hard to just dip in and out of and try to visit. This is a, such a big project, obviously, um, it, you know, embedding with a football team for the most part for, for an entire season and, and talking to as many people as you talk to um, as many times as you talked with them um, from a writing standpoint, did you wait entirely until all the reporting was done or were you writing as you were reporting? So I started writing on August for, I'm sorry, October 1st, 2019. So they were only about midway through the season. Cause I did the math. <laughs> I had a hundred thousand word book due in March of 2020. Now I wound up, wound up getting delayed because of the pandemic. Uh, supposed it was originally supposed to publish in August 2020, not August 2021. Um, so I was like, okay, well, a hundred thousand words divided by let's see how many days I've got. Um, and the math 
sucked you know like it didn't look good and, and i'm not somebody who really enjoys writing it's really hard for me so like i have to sort of be in this like frame of mind um and i didn't have that luxury you know i didn't take time off from the post i had responsibilities uh that that, that had to come first with the post and um you know so my goal i think so with me i mean a lot of this you, you just got self-diagnose with me is the hardest thing is just like to sit down and start uh so i told myself if i wrote a thousand words a day um and i could take weekends off or i could write 500 words a day every day holidays weekends whatever um you know i could make it <laughs> and uh it wound up being you know a, a good exercise for me um because a lot of times if i sit down even to write 500 words i write 1500 you know i just, i want to finish a thought or i want to finish a chapter or a section or whatever um but sitting down and starting is really hard uh, partly because I know it's hard for me to get up, <laughs> but you know, that, that for me like that, that wound up working. Uh, and I made it, I mean, I filed the first draft, which wasn't very good. Um, the week before everybody got sent home and then I wrote it three more times in the, in the following 14 months or so. And I wrote four drafts overall. Oh man. I was going to ask you in terms of structurally, right. Um, uh, the book is built kind of around that season, uh, which, which makes sense, but you, you mix in so much throughout the book. I, I'm curious, like going in when you started writing, what were the things that, that you ended up having to change in, in, in various drafts was the overarching structure, one of those things, or just other types of, um, uh, parts of, of the manuscript. A handful of the chapters switched places um, like chapter three was originally chapter five. And it just like made sense that you're kind of uh, introducing these these young people. Uh, you, you have a better idea of who the coaches are um, at the beginning and kind of what you're expecting of them. Um, so that was part of it. You know, one of the big things that we had a discussion about is where to put Rayel Johnson, who is a New Orleans Police Department homicide detective, and he's the man who whose job it is to investigate Tonka George's murder among many, many, many others. And, um, you know, for a long time, I sort of wanted him to be my Jamie Lannister. You know, I wanted him to be, you know, somebody that you kind of hate as this avatar of a broken police system um, and city government in New Orleans, but who you then grow to understand. In the first draft, you know, that's kind of what I tried, but it didn't quite work. You know, there, well, there wasn't quite enough. First off, I think in my head, I thought he was going to be more of a character than he wound up being. The other characters at Carr were just, you know, way too good characters. They're real people, but I digress. Um, but I also didn't want to take him out because he is, if not the cause, you know, he's, he's who a lot of people blame. Like he's the human face of this department, but it also has a real life sort of corrosive effect on him. You know, there's in a place like New Orleans where, where almost everything is busted up um, and corrupt in many cases, you know, there, there are no heroes there, you know, and certainly not where, you know, they're where you expect them to be. Um, and so I wanted to explain a homicide detective who's under just unbelievable duress because it is like this chicken and egg thing. Like, do people not trust the cops because of people like Rael or do is people like, are people like Rael, you know, unsuccessful because people don't trust the cops. So 
you know, if we're talking about murder, um, I wanted to also kind of dig deep into, you know, why people kill each other in this city. I mean, it's just like, it's just something you do, you know, like I had so many people, you know, call me and just so-and-so got shot. You know, it's just like, this is with the same urgency as if I called you and said I was an offender bender. It's just something that happens. It sucks, but you know, no big deal. You know, they got shot in the leg, you know, okay. All right. Well, hope they're okay. You know, kind of one of those things. So how do you explain that? And I, anyway, like this is obviously a long winded answer to your question, (laughs) but um, I wanted to, I wanted to use Rayel as a way to show like a human face to this messed up department and you know, so just having kind of this invisible boogeyman. So where do you put him? I had to rewrite him a couple times, uh, show a little bit of growth. Um, and hopefully I did. I mean, hopefully that worked. Um, but that was one that I, you know, we kind of went back and forth on a lot. Uh, book, the book has been out for just about a month now. Have you heard from anyone who, who you've written about uh, in the book? And, and what, what's, what's the last month been like for you? I mean, pretty crazy. Um, like for the most part, the people who have read it at Carr um, are very happy with it. Um, Omari, you know, kind of true to who, who like his character was. Like he called me and said in the first chapter, he thought that he sounded like a punk bit, a punk bitch. Uh, <laughs> I was like, well, why don't you call me after you finish reading the book? Uh, Omari is kind of Bryce's foil. Um, young coach, easily rattled. Um, he's not a punk bitch, <laughs> but like he does have, he serves a purpose. Um, you know, one player called and asked, you know, when do I get paid for this? And I was like, well, you know, you don't, you don't really get paid for this, man. You know, we, I thought we talked about that. Um, so it's for the most part, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make myself accessible. If they have a question, mm-hmm. I always answer it, you know, even if it's a little bit awkward because they don't know, you know, I mean, like, so uh, for the most part, it's been great. Um, but, you know, I, I, you always feel like, I always feel like, you know, what could I have done better? What could I have done differently? How could I have written this, you know, more compassionately, you know, et cetera. So I'm, I'm probably more in my own head about what I could have done different. I wish I had a fifth draft. I always do. I'm talking with Kent Babb. Babb is the author of Across the River, Life, Death, and Football in an American City. The book is on sale now. We'll be back in 60 seconds with more from Babb. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media Programs at Fairfield University. Digital Journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Kent Babb, a sports feature writer at the Washington Post. He was included in the year's best sports writing 2021, which will be available on October 5th. 
you also, so that book came out in, in August and, and now you're going to be included in a book that's coming out, uh, on October 5th. Um, uh, the year's best sports writing 2021 is going to be released here shortly by triumph books. Uh, and that's a new anthology that's being edited by, uh, Glenn Stout. Uh, the story that's included in that of yours is, uh, a piece you, uh, wrote, um, for the Washington Post, uh, can you tell me tell me what that piece is about? So it's about Andrew Giuliani, uh, who a year ago thereabouts was the uh, sports liaison, basically um, for the Donald Trump White House. So he so was. Let me jump in you know, real quick. It, sure. Incredibly different type of story than the book that just came out. Yeah, very different. Very different. different. <laughs> so go. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so he, at least on paper, is the person who um, arranges the championship White House visits. You know, if you win the Super Bowl, somebody's got to put it on the calendar. And that person ostensibly is Andrew Giuliani. You know, sort of come to find out um, he was a scratch golfer, a pro uh, for a short time who, you know, Trump just wanted to play golf with. So he was somebody, you know, he played if he played with Brett Favre, um, you know, he might start with you know, Favre as Trump might start with Favre as his teammate. And then if Andrew starts making birdies, well, all right, Andrew's on my team now. Um, Trump obviously took a lot of credit for the big 10 playing football last year. And in fact, Andrew took some credit himself. You know, I found out that was all bullshit. <laughs> um, you know, that's the lead of the story. Just like, you know, pretty much everybody in the big 10 was like, yeah, we don't know who this guy is, but good luck with your story. Um, so yeah, very, very different experience uh white house versus you know little high school um on the west bank in new orleans like probably couldn't be uh, more different but uh yeah i mean i this is an, an incredible honor to be in that first iteration of this book you know glenn is amazing you know just to be considered as you know very is just a hell of a thing so I'm, I'm very thankful this is like the one like being in that book uh is, is kind of the one thing i care about you know um i just try to try to block out the award stuff, but you know, I, I'm not able to do it on this book. It's uh, this is, this piece is very newsy and I, and I guess I read it right after finishing the book, right. Which is very, um, uh, there's obviously news elements in it, but it's really about people and the lives that they're living. Whereas this one is very, very newsy in a lot of ways, but it's also showing us about this one person, but how, how did this one come about? How did this, this story, land in your lap that, that you were the one that, that started reporting on it. Pre-pandemic, my editor, Joe Tone, and I, uh, he's the features and investigations editor at the Washington Post. Um, you know, we were just kind of batting around ideas. And, you know, one of the ones that we were intrigued by was, you know, what the hell does a sports liaison do? I mean, he's got a famous last name. It's, it's, it's Rudy Giuliani's son. Um, and it started off, this is in February, 2020, of just of kind of just like a curious, you know, see what he does. Um, obviously, the pandemic put that and everything else on hold. I didn't revisit it until last September, maybe October. Um, you know, when we started thinking, you know, wait a minute, like he's taking some credit for college football being back. You know, so let's see if this guy's really got some juice. Um, you know, made ninety thousand dollars a year, so taxpayers supported. And you know, also like, what does he do? Like, you you just don't really hear his name pop up unless he's on the golf course with Trump. So I wanted to, I, first off, I wanted to find out what that job really does. And then secondary, I wanted to find out what Andrew 
really does. And I mean, it's been a year and I don't know if I still know like what the hell he did, except go play golf with Trump because he didn't arrange the championship visits. I, I think I emailed pretty much every championship team, like the SID or the PR person for every championship team who did go to the white house and they never, a handful did, but very few dealt with Andrew Giuliani. So he was, I mean, I, this is my opinion, not what the story says, but I think he was Donald Trump's $95,000 a year golf buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a it's tough Trump-tastic. job. <laughs> it's it Trump-tastic. Right. Right. Um, you taught when I was reading through it, uh, I, I lost track. I was, I started out counting how many people I think you reached out to and I kind of lost track. Did you, did you ever keep track of how many people you reached out to and talked to for that piece? No, I have no idea. I mean, I, it's, it's actually harder than you think a, to find out who was invited to the white house and B during Donald Trump's term, how many actually went. Cause I mean, remember like that was, that was news on whether you went or did not go. And so like the Patriots went, the Warriors famously refused all NBA teams didn't go. Um, but I mean, I had the post, like we, like if the nationals went, um, or, you know, we, we would, we would report on who, like who specifically who was there and who wasn't there. So, um, you know, it's probably debatable on whether that's, you know, good journalism, but, uh, it became a thing. And, you know, so programs and teams, you know, didn't really advertise where they stood on that, you know, like, I think sports entities still think they are apolitical. They're not, you know, cause like no, nothing is, nobody is uh, not anymore. And so they try to be, and to get them just to like cop to it, whether they did or didn't go, who did you talk to? Uh, was pretty hard. I mean, I, I bet I talked to 50 people at least and that, that might've been just like a, Hey, do you know who Andrew Giuliani is? Um, you know, lots of off the record or, or background um, getting people to talk for that. Even people who, think Andrew Giuliani had like a legitimate job was quite a challenge. <laughs> so how long have you been at the Washington post? Nine years on October 1st. How about that? That's good. I, what uh, did you know when you were younger that this is what you wanted to do? Um, I was a teenager and I at first thought I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. Like I want to do play by play on Atlanta Braves games. I grew up in South Carolina. I love the Braves wanted to be Pete Van Waren. Um, I tried that, not obviously at that level, but tried to do a little mock play-by-play. It's hard, man. Like, that's way hard. So I said, all right, yeah, not for me. Um, I'm, I was better. I just took to writing, you know, quicker, I guess. Uh, I, I at least, like, didn't give it up. Um, but, I, you know, it, I was in college when I discovered I wanted to do longer-form type stories, like in-depth stuff like Gary Smith used to do. Um, you know, like, how do you make somebody feel something by just writing words? It's like the superpower that I just wanted to try. Um, and, I mean, I, I tell young journalism students now, just like, yes, be good at everything, but, but try to be great at one thing. Try. You know, you might not always get there, but try. Um, I've known almost for 20 years that I wanted to be a long form writer and ideally for the Washington post. I, my two dream jobs were sports illustrated and the Washington post. And that goes back in almost as long as I can remember. I uh, wanted to see my name on the cover of sports illustrated, like, you know, so many of my friends and people I admire. Um, but that probably is not to be, and that's okay. I'll, I'll just have to live with it. 
I, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're talking uh, on Zoom and, and you could probably see my face. Like when you started mentioning wanting to go into broadcast TV and be a be a play by play guy doing baseball, like my face almost broke open because that's literally my childhood. You know, no. I grew up in Ohio, but we had cable. So I had WGN and I grew up wanting to be Harry Carey, but maybe not drunk Harry Carey. Um, <laughs> literally standing outside and calling the games as I, you know, as I'm standing there. Um, and I went to college to do broadcast and then I was like, I'm not going to do broadcast. There's no way. Of course, now I'm doing broadcast, but that's beside the point. Um, and I made the switch to journalism and, you know, it made, made my road as a newspaper reporter for 10 years. So, um, it's literally almost the, <laughs> the same, the same, uh, the story arc right there. So, well, I'm I'm doing what I ought to be doing. I like sadly I can't think fast enough to do broadcast. Um, <laughs> and I probably can't think fast enough to do daily journalism. That's why I, I take my sweet ass time so much. But um, yeah, I I still really like what I do. Um, and that's I'm I'm not I don't take that for granted because a lot of people you know don't get this opportunity. And the fact that I get to write silly ass sports stories a lot of the times and, and go chase stuff that I'm personally curious about, like in New Orleans, like, yeah, I, that's not something I take for granted at all. Yeah. Well, Kent, uh, thanks so much for joining the podcast, uh, across the river life, death and football in an American city is on sale. Now I highly recommend, uh, everyone, uh, get the book and read it. I think it's a really important book, um, that, that, that more people need to read so we can understand, what life is like in parts of the country that we would never go to in a lot of ways. So, um, Kent, thanks for being on the podcast, man. This is a great discussion. Thank you so much for having me and including me on this uh, roster of amazing people that you've had. So, uh, thanks so much, Matt. That was Kent Babb. Babb is a sports feature writer at the Washington post. He's also the author of across the river, Life, Death, and Football in an American City. The book is on sale now. As usual, I have linked to everything that we've talked about on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast.com. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.